0: From REtipster.com, this is the RE Tipster Podcast. This show is all about using your limited time and energy to invest in real estate with lower risk and
1: bigger rewards. If you want to build more financial freedom from real estate without putting your life savings on the line, this show is for you. Hey, everyone. How's it going? This is Seth Williams from the RE Tipster Podcast, and welcome Today, in this episode, I've got a really interesting interview to share with you. This is an interview with a guy named Seth, which is just an amazing, amazing name. (laughs) Seth also goes by the name E.B. Farmer, and E.B. Farmer is a pen name that he uses to write on behalf of himself and his family, because this guy comes from a family of land investors or land flippers. I discovered this guy just this past year when I stumbled across his book that he wrote called The Land Flipper, Turning Dirt Into Dollars. And first time I saw this book, I was like, hmm, interesting. I wonder if that has anything to do with like the kind of land flipping that I do. Like, I wonder if it's like the exact same thing or if it's totally different. I was just really intrigued by that. So picked up his book, and I read it through over the course of about a week. And I thought it was just a really well-written, interesting book. And through the process of reading about his approach to the land business, I learned that it's like completely different from what I do. Like very, very uh, few similarities. I mean, pretty much the biggest similarity is that we're both working with land and we're both familiar with a lot of the terms and concepts and processes that are involved with working with land. But other than that, in terms of like, finding deals, identifying opportunities, deciding in which markets to work in, a lot of those like central core components of the business, he does things like way different than I do. And I wouldn't really call his approach like better or worse than mine necessarily, it's just a very different set of advantages and disadvantages based on the way that he chooses to do things. And so I started up a conversation with him over Facebook, and we've uh, traded emails, and really just had a lot of correspondence over the past several months. And I've just gotten to know him a little bit. He's a really cool guy, and I thought, hey, you know, why don't we have you on the show, and you can just tell us how your business works, and we can sort of figure out the similarities and the differences. And part of the reason I wanted to share his thoughts with all of you, is because a lot of people who are listening to this may be pretty well familiar with the way that I approach the land business. And essentially the idea with my business model is to find vacant land properties that are certainly worth a good amount of money, but I'm able to get them for very, 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 very cheap. And as a result of that, it's not hard to put it on the market for a very, very cheap price and still make a pretty good amount of money from that. And when you're pursuing these specific kinds of opportunities, doesn't really require that you do anything to the property at all. I mean, really, the profit in the deal is based on the fact that I bought it for so cheap in the first place, so it just kind of gives me this huge profit margin and buffer of protection to work with, which is really nice. Um, However, I have to admit, because these are the types of properties I'm always looking for, and I'm generally not willing to do a whole lot of stuff like improving the property, or subdividing it or paying really anywhere north of like 20 or 30% of market value because I like won't really consider things that require a higher investment or any hands-on work, I end up walking away from a ton of opportunities, opportunities that still may be very good deals But it's just sort of out of my wheelhouse. It's just not something I want to spend my time with because I'm focused on finding stuff that I can get for cheap. That's the opportunity I'm choosing. And one of the consequences of doing that is that I'm actively ignoring other opportunities that would require a higher investment or more work on my part. And the thing that uh, EB Farmer does differently is he's not necessarily going after stuff that is super cheap. He's willing to pay a lot more for properties and then really get his hands dirty and subdivide stuff and make improvements to the property if he needs to. And as a result, he's generally putting a lot more money into a deal, but he's also doubling his investment and making like at least five figures, if not six figures on the deals he's doing. Now, the reason I think it's important for myself and for yourself, if you happen to be a land investor, to be aware of this approach is because, occasionally, you will come across deals that are awesome deals, but they do require some more hands-on effort. And when you come across these deals, you essentially have two choices. You can ignore it and just say, don't have time for it, sorry, I'm looking for lower hanging fruit that is cheaper, that isn't gonna take as much work. Or, instead of finding like five of those types of deals, you can dive into one of these bigger ones and say yes. I am gonna invest the time, the money, the extra effort it takes, and we're gonna make a bigger bet on this deal and hopefully it'll pay off. And I'm not here to tell you if or when you should or shouldn't do that with any property you come across. I'm not giving you that kind of advice. That's up for you to decide. But I don't think it ever hurts to be better educated and more informed about other options that may be on the table. And really just putting other tools in your tool belt so that if you ever happen to come across a deal that just happens to justify that kind of extra effort. Maybe it's worth doing that. And frankly, you might even find that like you prefer doing that. Maybe it's more fun. Maybe in the markets that you're working, there's actually like a lot more opportunities if you are willing to improve or subdivide or do something else to a property other than just flipping it as it is. Without saying any more, I'm going to push play here and we can listen in on this interview. Seth, how you doing? What's up, Seth? How's it going, man? It's going good. It's not every day I talk to another Seth, so it's
0: good. We are few and far between.
1: Yeah, I know. (laughs) So, why don't you tell us uh, your background a little bit? How did you get into land investing specifically?
0: Okay, well, first of all, I'd probably not call myself an investor so much as a you know, a flipper because I feel like investing kind of sounds like I'm buying things and holding on to them and waiting for them to increase in value. True. Whereas, you know, I sort of tend to do things to within a three to six month time frame. And to answer the other question, I, you know, I was sort of born into this. I have to say, I have to be honest, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not necessarily a completely self-made man. My family has been in real estate pretty much since I was born and even before I was born. Uh, my dad began flipping houses, and then b- around the time I was born, he switched to land, and so ever since I was a very small child, I've been involved. Um, that's not to say that you know it's been all silver spoons <laughs> or anything mm-hmm. like that, because there's been huge changes in our business model, and I've pretty much rebuilt the business three or four times in, in different ways to so sort of adapt to what's happening in the world. So our business model has just gone through complete overhauls so many times, um, that I've just sort of learned on, on the, on the job, so to speak. And, you know, now we have a pretty good business model that's working for the time being and may change in the future,
1: but yeah. Okay. Well, that, uh, kind of leads into the next question is like, what is your business model? And I guess I didn't realize it had changed a bunch of times, like what did it start as and how has it mm-hmm. changed and what is it today? Like, how are you, how are you finding deals? What, what do you consider to be a good deal? What kind of offers do you make? How does that all work?
0: Right. Well, uh, the biggest change was, you know, we used to be in houses somewhat and we pretty much totally washed our hands of houses at this point that we just we sort of view them as too much trouble, to, to be honest, and, and leaking pipes and tenants and stuff like that. We just don't like dealing with. So that was that's the first major change. Um, then there was a point where we were doing like full 40 unit, 50 unit subdivisions where we were building roads, putting in utilities Sort of like in the boom times and stuff like that. Um, But since then, we've sort of changed to be smaller, faster, quicker. And basically, the business model is you go out to the country about an hour away from sort of civilization. You look for some land that has pretty decent road frontage, preferably on a corner, uh, somewhere where there's just not a lot of people. It's removed enough from the city to be sort of out of the hustle and bustle, but close enough to where it's accessible to things like a Walmart and stuff like that. And we'll take a 10 acre lot and we'll buy it for a hundred thousand and we'll break it up into five, two acre lots and sell each one of those two acre lots for 40,000. It's just an example. So in essence, what we're doing is we are using the economy of scale to break things down into smaller units which we're selling for more per acre than it would cost to buy a big huge chunk of land
1: so if i understand right you don't really use direct mail or pull lists when you're finding your deals is that correct
0: you know ever since uh i've gotten into your stuff seth i've started to do that a little more because it's it is a a way that does work and um We've used it from time to time to, to do stuff like that, but that's never been like our main focus. And I think uh, one of the main differences that b- between us and, and someone who pulls lists is that we are very local. So we have an area that we work in, we stick to that area, we don't really remote invest very much. We, we tend to just really, really be focused on our market. And so there's only so many lists you can pull, although there are lists you can pull and we've done that to some success. But rather than pulling a list a few states over, we would, you know, instead defer to other methods uh, to to find properties.
1: When you say you stick to your area or your market, like how big is that area? Like what would be the I don't know how many square miles or is this like a whole state or a county or how much, yeah. how much space is this?
0: Um uh, we focus in three counties. Okay. So we're sort of, you know, in the middle of these three different counties. We have two sort of major-ish cities. Mm-hmm. Within an hour driving distance, which is a tip that I would give people if if you're looking for sort of a good place to get started with something like this uh look for an area that has a couple large population centers and then go to an you know an area between them mm-hmm. that's kind of rural, so yeah it's about three counties that we work in, and uh we've <laughs> it's it seems like a small space, but we have we have more opportunities than we know what to do with so
1: Sure. No, that, that's awesome. So are you, are you like finding deals on the MLS or are you just like, uh, driving for dollars as some people call it? Like you find a property and you're like, I want that one. So I'm going to contact the owner. Like what, what is your methodology for finding these opportunities?
0: Yeah. All of the above Seth. I mean, we like, we've done mail outs. We've done the MLS, we've done, you know, just calling specific agents again and again and again until they finally take us seriously and send us something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Word of mouth is a huge thing for us because we are local, because people have started to know us as those guys who buy random rural pieces of land. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll just get a phone call and be like, hey, I heard you guys buy land. Here's what I've got. So Mm -hmm. word of mouth is, is big in that way um craigslist is big although craigslist seems to be a little hit or miss these days we have had success with craigslist and one of the biggest ways surprisingly and i don't know how long this is going to last or if it's going to be you know evergreen in the future but facebook swap shops man (laughs) you go into a facebook swap shop you do a search for acre make sure you also spell it acer because people often misspell it (laughs) (laughs) and then get um Have Facebook notify you whenever something pops up on the swap shop with that word in it And you would be surprised the kind of deals you can find man. Mm -hmm. you know Because that seems to be the first place where the average Joe Will go when they when they have something that they want to sell Mm -hmm. and a lot of the people we buy from are average Joe types you know uh, Farmers and blue-collar workers people who inherited their land and don't want it anymore that kind of stuff so yeah
1: I've heard uh, Facebook is a great resource for selling properties as well. And I, it is. I, I've been trying it a, a bit in the past year, and maybe it's the areas I've been working in something, but they have not produced a lot of results for me. But everybody else I talk to who has tried it seems to have great luck with it. So I'm pretty sure it's a legit thing that's worth doing. But I'm curious, do you have any tips for like getting stuff sold on Facebook? Like other than just finding the local swap shops, is there – Anything specific you should talk about in your listing or in the mm-hmm. thing that you post on Facebook or any ways to find hidden opportunities there
0: well, um as far as selling, I can tell you that it's all about the picture. you can type whatever you want in that box it doesn't matter mm-hmm. <laughs> you could you could type something terrible there, and people would still just message you and say how much you know because it's all about the picture yeah that okay. that picture is what draws people in um so. Yeah, my my tip is, you know, if if you're trying to sell something, a, a beautiful picture showing the visceral curb appeal of the land is going to get you more more hits than any listing of the attributes of the property will. Strangely,
1: uh-huh. no, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, Facebook is a very very visual creature. I mean, that's kind of how advertisers and you know videos and stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of how you win is you got to yeah. very quickly catch someone's attention. So that yeah. actually makes perfect sense.
0: People sit there and scroll, 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 you know, and it's gotta be something that that grabs them as far as buying stuff on the the swap shops I mean the best thing you can do is just cast sort of a wide net like I tend to look for groups that are over ten thousand members, so if you're a living, if you're a little bit too rural, then you're gonna have a little bit of a problem finding that sometimes, but I'd locate all the population centers within sixty miles and type them into Facebook and find every swap shop you can because. Facebook has these features now that allows you to, like, do a bunch of groups at once for a posting or search a bunch of groups at once. So just cat you got to cast a wide net. It takes some doing, too. Plus, a lot of the groups you have to, like, answer a bunch of questions to get into. Mm-hmm. So it does take a little bit of work before you're, like, established in all these groups and stuff like that. But a very valuable uh, place to be. Um, there are other places, though, that we often find land deals that I wanted to mention, uh, another one is timber companies. So you have these big timber companies across the United States that own thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of raw land. Mm -hmm. Some of it's planted. Some of it's recently cut. Some of it's going to be planted. But, uh, the thing about timber companies is they do not discriminate between 20 acres of landlocked swamp and 20 acres of rolling hills up on a highway.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, as a land flipper, the 20 acres of the rolling hills on the highway is worth five, six, seven times more what the 20 acres of landlocked swamp is worth. But to the timber company, it's often just a item in a spreadsheet, you know, 20 acres, such and such county. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So you can get some really incredible deals. Um, It can be really hard to get your foot in the door with timber companies. Some of them are interested in liquidating more than others. Um, there are There are three or four like major big timber companies i won 't like name their names or anything like that, but you can you can figure them out and a lot of them will have local land real estate agents that only exclusively work for that timber company. so if you can get that guy 's number and this is something that I hear you say all the time, Seth, on your podcast and it 's really wise, which is just you know picking up the phone is one of the most powerful things you can do yeah for sure, so call those guys. <laughs>
1: and yeah. just to be clear when you're talking about getting your foot in the door with timber companies these are timber companies that are going out there buying land specifically for the purpose of harvesting that timber and that's that's the only reason they care about it they don't care about the usability right and so that's so you're basically able to get better deals than you normally would on the open market because you're buying from them or or they just- yeah.
0: sometimes they, they do put stuff on the open market and other times if you call them early enough and they're about to put something on the open market, you might get it, you know, cheaper or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, they're they're a great a great source of land and, and, and always sort of uh, have helped us out with some good deals. Another thing is just I wanted to say is just driving around in the country. We find so many deals because we're just we just go on a drive down some state highway and we see a FSBO sign. And as far as I know, there's not a real good central location for FSBO listings. Mm-hmm. like there's a there's a fisbo.com fisbo by the way for sale by owner so it's some someone who's trying to sell their land but doesn't want to list it with an agent and oftentimes all these people do is put a sign up on the side of the road mm, sure and so you know if you can If you can be the first person to spot that sign or you know someone who gives them the right kind of offer, you can find a lot of good deals that way too
1: I know you, you sort of mentioned some numbers a little bit earlier, and we'll get a little bit more into some maybe specific deals you've you've done but I think that's that's one of the things that kind of differentiates uh, your approach from you know what i've always done, and that is you're generally willing to pay more for a larger piece of property because you're planning to either improve that property or subdivide it and kind of like multiply the value in some way. Whereas I'm, I'm generally only looking at opportunities where people will, you know, sell for like pennies on the dollar and then I'm not really doing anything to it. So it's, it's sort of like an opportunity cost thing. And there's certainly, you know, huge benefits to doing what you do and other benefits to doing what I do. So it's, kind of just fundamentally a different approach to like why we look for properties, what's considered a deal, what the plan is after you acquire it. Um, I'm I'm
0: jealous. I'm jealous of how, how much you're able to scale.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's something I, you know, I can't do. So yeah, I mean, it's, I guess just sort of the different pros and cons of two very different approaches, but sure. I'm wondering, can you give us any examples of, of deals you've done like purchase price, sale price, you know what you did to the property, what you learned along the way, things like that
0: absolutely um let's see one of uh one of the better ones I did within the past couple of years um I actually bought from some heirs these heirs also happened to be real estate agents, so we were calling this one particular real estate office every week or every two weeks. And it just so happened that two of the real estate agents there, not the ones we were calling, just some other ones that worked there, had inherited this piece of land pretty far out in the country. Mm -hmm. And it was in not the best area. Like the the area where the land was was solid. But if you continued down that dirt road, you would get to some pretty, pretty nasty trailer parks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the land itself was nice. It was next to a dairy farm, which was really, really beautiful, rolling hills and a little creek and – cows and holsteins and all that kind of stuff and uh the land actually had planted pine on it it was 20 acres that someone had planted with pine uh maybe 12 years before 13 years before so the pine wasn't really ready to harvest yet um but that was just sort of what the land looked like so we hemmed and hawed over the property itself a little bit we were like we didn't think people would really like pine trees all that much we didn't think people would be crazy about the trailer parks down the road and stuff like that but we decided if we could get it at a certain price, we would go for it. And that price was 75000 So it actually stayed on the MLS for a long time. And this is sort of a seg- segue into something else I want to talk about. But there's a lot of inefficiency in the real estate market when it comes to land. It's not like a house um, where people know exactly sort of what it's worth and, and what the school zone is and everything like that. A lot of times when a real estate agent gets a listing for land, They don't really know anything about it. They don't know where the corners are. They don't know um, know, if the mineral rights are passing with it or or when the latest survey was. There's a lot of inefficiency, and they sometimes tend to just kind of throw it up on the MLS and hope for the best, Mm -hmm. right? So there will be properties that sit on the MLS, these rural tracts of land. They don't have a sign on them advertising the land. There's no posting on Facebook or Craigslist going on. All there is is that MLS listing. So if you're if you're an average person and you don't know anything about land and you want to go out into the country and buy this 20 acres, you're going to have a really hard time even just getting started, like figuring out where the land is because the map is wrong on the MLS listing, <laughs> you know, and you're not going to be able to find the property corner. So you're not going to know what you're looking at buying. And then, you know, this is not to disparage all real estate agents because I know there are really solid ones out there. But, you know, the. The lady shows up to walk the 20 acres with you, and she's wearing high heels, and she's in a minivan, and, and you're like, "Well, I want to see the back property corner," and she's, you know, it it. Cre- <laughs> it it's not exactly what you'd call efficient, right? Uh-huh. Um. So anyway, the point is, we were able to to watch this listings remain on the MLS for months and months and months, dropping, 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 dropping. It got kind of close to 75. So we called them up and we asked, "Hey, would you guys be willing to finance this for us? We'll give you 10,000 down. We'll pay you, you know, 700 a month or whatever." They said no, flat out no. So another month passes, it's still on the MLS. We call them back. Owner financing? No. So another month passes, we call them back. This is uh, one of the lessons you learn from this is that a lot of times if you just be persistent with real estate and you ask over and over again, people will uh, people will eventually sort of bend to what you want. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we ended up getting it set for 75 finance with $10,000 down and we immediately went in and broke it up into four or five acre lots. So, you know, the five acre lots were, were really nice in terms of topography. Um, we, we, all we really did to improve it was we bush hogged, you know, with the, which is basically like a glorified way of saying we mowed the grass, Mm -hmm. but with like a big tractor that can like mow through the woods and stuff. Yeah cleared out the front, made it nice and appealing, put signs all over it, advertised in the newspaper, Craigslist, Facebook, you know, with the mobile home companies, we went and gave them little leaflets showing here's some land we have for sale if you have any mobile home customers who are looking for land. Just put up index cards in the hardware store, talked to the guy in in, in the little gas station and told him the land down the road was for sale and so on and so forth. Just marketed it And, you know, we made lines around it to where when you get there, you can immediately walk around your five acres. That makes a huge difference. Just being able to walk someone around Mm -hmm. their property line and say, hey, this is your five acres, you know, especially if they're from the city, they're going to be like, wow, I had no idea how big and awesome it was, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because it's kind of hard to visualize acres in your head, even for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Five acres is a pretty big piece of land. so what we ended up doing is wrapping the note so i forgot to mention that when we did buy the land we made really sure there was no do on sale clause in the contract a do on sale clause means that if i'm financing something for you and you go to sell it to another person you have to pay me off right mm-hmm. so if you can if you can make sure that that's not in the contract you're allowed to do what's called a wrap which is the person you bought it from is financing for you and you are financing it to the person who's buying it from you does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, we started to generate a positive cash flow. We were paying $700 a month. We had sold a couple of the lots and were generating 14-1500 a month. And we even ended up selling half the lots for cash. So, basically, we we spent 75 on it and we spent maybe 2000 on miscellaneous fix-up and advertising and we sold about 160 you know, in lots. And, um, you know, we're still getting checks in the mail. I mean, we got, we got the people paid off who we bought it from and we're still getting checks in the mail, uh, three years later. So yeah, pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, man. That's, that's an awesome example. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty huge payoff. I mean, to double an investment or more than double an investment of 75 grand. I mean, that's, that's pretty big money and it. It's frankly, I mean, it sounds like it's sort of worth the effort that you put in that, (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean, that's something that like, I wouldn't even consider doing that, but at the same time, uh-huh. like it's not often that I come across deals that yield that kind of profit probably because I, I just forgo those opportunities and that's not something I focus on. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the huge advantages to your approach. And yeah. I, I am curious, uh, and I think you talk in your book a little bit about this, but you know, one of the inherent challenges with land in general is just like valuation and understanding, like what is it actually worth? So when you're you, when you're evaluating a new deal, like this this property for example, how did you ever decide that okay, we're willing to pay a seventy five thousand? Like that is a good deal. Right. Like what, what was the market value, and how did you land on that? And how did you figure out what you could subdivide and resell these new lots for? Like what's the equations you use to come up with all those numbers?
0: Yeah, good question. Um- First of all, when when looking for a piece, the road frontage is number one. This piece was on a corner. Doing what we do, we don't want to build roads, and we don't want to deal with all that. So if you can get a piece of property on the corner, your your profit is pretty much baked in. Second thing is location. This property was pretty far away from civilization, but it was close to the interstate. And we sell to a lot of truckers, and we sell to a lot of people who commute and it's kind of weird, but if you can be close to an interstate, it really doesn't matter where you are sometimes, you know. People sort of view that as a lifeline to civilization. Another thing very specific to land is topography. And I know you've talked about, uh, like, Earth Point and stuff like that, where you can sort of get a view of the topography. And, and topography, for those of you who don't know, is, is just refers to the role of the land. So where are the hills? Where are the valleys? You know, where does the drain go? Are there any low spots that are going to turn swampy, that kind of thing? So a piece of land with like a hill that's kind of right in the middle that looks down on the road and, and, and the water drains off of it in each direction, that's perfect. What you don't want is a drain running right through the middle of your lot, right? So topography is important when you're arranging how you're going to divide the lots. Uh, flood zone is important um, depending on where you are. Utilities some country lots I sell have water. Others are going to require a water well. We almost never have access to sewer because we're too far away from the country for that. But cable is also important. Obviously, you need to have electricity. If you don't have electricity, that's one of the few things that can completely kill the deal because no one's living without that. So um, natural beauty makes a huge difference. Like I said, with the Facebook pictures, you know, people really respond to curb appeal in real estate. It's one of these things I keep I, I find myself incredulous about it all the time. You know, I'm like, people will buy uh, something if you mow the grass. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. they they won't buy it if you don't mow the grass. The initial gut reaction to a piece is is huge. Like driving up to this piece, you came up to this really nice dairy farm with rolling hills and cows and stuff, and so that was one of the things that I think sold the land. You know, just the visceral reaction to it. Yeah. The other thing is is the county. Counties have different rules about what you can do, and and some counties are more uh, more desperate for development, and others don't. Others are full of nimby's, frankly. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you, what county you're in is important. The best situation is you're one county over from the from the development from the from the developed area. So you're just across the line. Mm-hmm. So the the county you're in is is rural, but just across the line is is a developed county. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. So that has a big thing to do with it too. Now, as far as like what the lots are going to be worth. This is another sort of advantage to being local is almost all the comps are our comps. So we've sold, you know, we sold five acres down the road for 45. So we know this one will sell for around 45. And, you know, as far as to help someone who's just getting their start though, because you obviously won't have that benefit. Um, there is often no telling exactly how much someone will pay for a piece of property because one of the things about land is it's very, very hard to, there's no objective value, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you go to a city and you say, here's a two bedroom, one bath, and it's in this neighborhood, there are people who can tell you within $10,000 what that's going to be worth, right? Mm-hmm. And it's pretty consistent if people know the market and know that area and know a little bit about houses yeah they can do that but when you go out to 20 acres out in the country next to a dairy farm you're going to get one appraiser who says it's worth 75 one appraiser might say 150 another appraiser might say it's worth 35 so
1: yeah yeah you I've, know. I've actually had you know, at length discussions with different appraisers about this exact thing. And right. kind of what they all come down to at the end of the day is like, we don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> like like the, <laughs> the day that we would normally normally need isn't there. Like yeah. there, there is no cost approach involved here. Cause there's nothing to be built. If something gets burned right. down, like it's just right. kind of an ambiguous thing. So,
0: I mean, their guess is just as good as yours. Yeah. And so, you know, people think apprais- appraisals are magic, um, but they're not, you know, and, People will also have this misconception they'll say, "Oh well uh un- you know land out there goes for five thousand an acre, and land over there goes for seven thousand an acre, and land back there goes for eight thousand dollars an acre but that's total b s mm-hmm. because you know one acre does not equal another acre. each acre is different. an acre on the corner, all utilities, beautiful cow field might be worth ten thousand an acre that's in behind that you know." Crappy trailer park and stuff with no utilities is going to be worth five hundred dollars an acre. Mm-hmm. So that also confuses people and yeah. leads to a lot of uh, mis you know misjudgment in in valuations. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, yeah, it's kind of a complex thing. But it, man, that's such a huge benefit though to be being able to have comps that are your own <laughs> and just <laughs> just being and that was one of the big things I sort of missed. You know, I used to to work. Exclusively in my home state for my first you know few years of doing the land business and um, you know go from one county to another, values definitely change, but still like there is a lot of consistency you'll find within the same state like just sure. certain things you can kind of just have an understanding about sure. um, and that that made it way easier for me to understand values but as soon as you start going all, all over the country it's like just hitting the giant reset button every yep. time you have to figure yep. out the new market and It's kind of frustrating. So that's one of the costs, I think. If you're not going to stick in one area, it's not always easy to figure out values.
0: And I don't mean to frustrate people. I know that's not helpful advice saying, oh, well, I have my own comps. (laughs) Because if I was listening, I'd be like, well, tell me how to do it. Right. (laughs) So what I want to say is there are comps anywhere. There's going to be, you know, comps for land. But you need to not just look. Like when you look at Zillow, say, and it says, well, this 10 acres sold for $10,000 an acre. You can't just take that as gospel. You need to go look at that 10 acres, like actually on the ground, if you're if you're working in a local area. Because that's going to give you a much better sense than Zillow is. But you'll be able to say, okay, this is a nice 10 acres with a nice hill and a nice area. It goes for 10000 So that gives me a more comprehensive view of what's going on, right? You can't just do everything on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can in some cases. But that's that's a good way to do it. And another th- another thing to just constantly remind yourself of, and this is kind of like a golden rule, is that the land is worth whatever you can find one person who will pay for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I kind of worded that badly, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> nope, I totally get it. I've said the <laughs> yeah. same same basic thing a lot.
0: <laughs> right. And there was one time when I bought um this was pretty recently. I bought a uh, another twenty acre piece, and I bought it out in the country, it was, I thought I paid too much for it, you know, it's like, this is, because I paid about uh, $8,000 an acre, which is way more than I usually do, but it was such a beautiful piece, and it was in sort of a location where you could easily get to the city, and I said to myself, you know, I'm going to find some city slicker (laughs) who's got some, you know, dreams of coming out to the country, I'm going to tell him to bring his wife out here, and I'm going to walk him across this beautiful field, and they're going to pay me double for it. And that's exactly what ended up happening. I Mm. found some city slickers who owned a contracting company, and he brought his wife out there, and she fell in love with it. And uh, yeah, so I just in three months I paid one twenty and got two forty for for a twenty acre piece.
1: Nice, dude. So that's a case in point. You know, I I just moved my family into a new house, and it's part of what I love about this new place we live is the backyard is just this like densely wooded area. Like as far Mm -hmm. as the eye can see, it's just woods. So we've got really nice privacy and just looks really nice. And, uh, problem is though, uh, We only own about 30 feet into the woods. The rest Mm -hmm. beyond that is owned by one of our neighbors. I see. And ever since I figured this out, I've had this like nagging fear in the back of my head that someday they're going to come and (laughs) blow all the trees down and build some horrible house back there or something. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to lose that, and I have no control over it. And I'm telling you, like, I'm probably going to do this at some point, just go knock on his door and say, yeah, you know, buy if, it from him. if you're ever thinking of doing anything back there, like, call me first, because sure, I would man. pay you anything for this. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it just kind of goes to show, like, absolutely. I mean, it's essentially like landlocked land other than the yep. access through this guy's yep. yard. But still, like, it means a lot to me and yeah. only me, because it's my backyard, yeah. Right. You um, get that water in the desert situation
0: going on sometimes, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I
0: have uh, I bought a piece on the road one time uh, thinking to break it up and sell it. Um, and then I noticed that there was a guy who was landlocked behind me who owned like 40 acres completely landlocked that my land would give perfect access to. Mm, interesting. So I just called him and sold it for twice what I paid for it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that was blind luck. I'm not recommending you try to do that necessarily.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you know I I always recommend sending out neighbor letters. Like figure out yep. who the neighbors are and just send a letter to them. Just say, "Hey, I'm this is." Always available.
0: recommend that. Always re- actually, I I often call the neighbors during the inspection period, even because oh, cool. I want to know what they're thinking. I want to know if they, "Hey, man, there there used to be a toxic waste dump there, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever." <laughs> so I often call the neighbors beforehand, try to establish a relationship with them. Of course, sometimes they get mad because. You know, just Mm -hmm. like you would feel if someone bought that piece and Mm -hmm. sold it in in two acre lots, you probably wouldn't be too happy. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I try to make nice places and stuff, but um, Mm -hmm. I find that (laughs) it's so weird, right? People go out to the country, they buy a piece of land, they build a house on it, and then they get mad that people around them are doing the same thing. (laughs) It's all
1: all perspective, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I'm curious, where are you getting the phone numbers of these people when you call them?
0: Yeah, the um, the Assessor's Office plus whitepages.com. Okay. So cool. Assessor's Office will give you their address. Mm-hmm. And then whitepages.com is $20 a month. And they're pretty good about giving you an accurate number. I think they hit it about 75% of the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll give you like a weird old number. But if you can't get them on the phone, knocking on the door is all right. Although I get a little weirded out by that in the country because I'm always waiting for someone to like, you know, come out with a shotgun or something. Mm-hmm.
1: But <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. So you could try like knocking on their bedroom window instead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to introduce yourself to the neighborhood. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I think you mentioned earlier the typical land flip that you're doing takes about three to six ish months. Is that mm-hmm. accurate?
0: Um, that That's our sort of goal. And we've had things as quick as three months. I'd say six months is probably the average mm-hmm. longest one I've ever had was 18 months Mm -hmm. and that was a real special case because we bought this piece of land with like really big trees on it we sold the trees the guys came in and made just a holy mess of of our property by by logging it sort of it's a long story but they did did sort of an inappropriate job they took a bunch of trees that they didn't really want just to get them out of the way and then Mm -hmm. they left them on the ground so it was a big mess so it took us a long time to like clean that up and on top of that the land was like tabletop flat It was in such, it was in a great location, but it was tabletop flat. And so every time it rained, it was, we couldn't get the tractor on it. And then it ended up raining for like the wettest wet season ever. So (laughs) it was a whole bunch of stuff, but yeah, it took about 18 months, but that's the longest we've ever had it. We've never, ever, ever lost money or failed to sell property. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the rule is they never make any more land. So there's a limited supply in the world. If you have some and you try to sell it, there's some price point and there's some person who will eventually buy it if you mm-hmm. keep trying. It's never like you're just going to – I mean, okay, well, 2008 might have been the exception. <laughs> if you had mm-hmm. a bunch of land in 2008, you had to sit on it. But it recovered and you could have ended up selling it all. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. don't be hesitant.
1: Yeah. When it comes to selling stuff, are there any like – websites that you frequent a lot other than like Facebook and Craigslist and that kind of thing. I mean, those are kind of like two very popular ones like Zillow too. What what, what are your uh, most powerful selling tools that you use? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do Zillow. I've done Landwatch. I've done Craigslist. Facebook tends to be the better one right now, but um, I'll tell you another rule that I always use is every time I talk to anybody who's interested in anything, I get their email address and I make a mailing list. Mm hmm. And every three months, I send out a mailing a mail out to all these people, and I tell them what I have, and I send them links to the Craigslist ad so that they can get all the details and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that, I found that really really helpful because even if like you know this buyer comes up, he says he wants two acres, but he doesn't like that two acres. But then in three months, he comes into some money and he's still looking, and you know, and he gets your email. Well, he'll probably buy. So the number one thing is like keep keep the leads list and and really cherish it because that's that's hugely important. Sure. Um, uh, another thing that I've learned is that, and, and this sort of plays into like something I always hear online, which is like know your customer. Mm-hmm. You know, draw an image in your head of who your customer is, mm-hmm. right? A, a profile, a selling profile. So, because our customers are typically people who are like looking for mobile homes, they, they don't necessarily want to build a big house out in the country sometimes, but that's just what I notice is that they're mobile homes. So. We go to the actual mobile home dealerships with flyers and say, "Hey, give these to people who are looking for land." You know, we may promise to pay them a bird dog fee, depending. on <laughs> – I don't know if that's a hundred percent legal, so I'm not saying that I do it, but I'm saying <laughs> you, you might you might do that. Uh, you know, five hundred dollars would be worth it if they sell you a thirty thousand dollar property for you, right? So you could do that if you're a more brazen person than me. Um, <laughs> so that that works really well. Uh, another thing is you know maybe we sell to a lot of truckers so go to a truck stop and put up a sign in the truck stop if you know there's a lot of truckers frequenting those truck stops in your area um we also sell to a whole lot of spanish-speaking people because as i understand it and i could be totally wrong about this but like in a lot of uh hispanic culture land is a big prestige item right if you own land you can kind of say that you've made it in life and so we end up selling a lot a lot of land to uh spanish-speaking individuals so You know, we'll go into the local bodega and put up signs in Spanish, you know, just know your customer and Mm -hmm. then follow him to the ends of the earth and -hmm. (laughs) and make sure your land is in front of him. That's my, my biggest advice.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think that's actually like super powerful, um, you know, whether it's a retiree or an investor or, or whatever the person, you're like the ideal buyer ends up being or who they most likely are, like understand where they're hanging out and, you know, how to reach the, that specific demographic of people. It's easy to just say, yeah, just throw it up on Craigslist. Like that's sort of like the yeah. shotgun approach that just catches everybody, but it's not yep. really drilling down to any specific audience. So I really think that's awesome advice. Yeah. You can never just say okay I've done enough let's wait for it to sell mm-hmm.
0: you have to always be thinking of the next thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know <laughs> so yeah, and, and eventually think, you'll sell it if if your livelihood depends on it believe me you will sell it mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I think that's where most of the people I talk to feel a lot of frustration when they feel this selling bottleneck and I've felt it myself because mm-hmm. like what I want is to just be able to click buttons and post stuff all over the place mm-hmm. like, and I just want to be done I don't want to do more than that but like, and you know, sometimes that totally works, but not always. And you have to be willing to, you know, pick up the phone or try something new. Maybe drive somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If, some I could, if I could if I could be in my
0: bathrobe all day, I would. But yeah. it doesn't it doesn't work usually, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it is kind of empowering to know, though. Like you actually do have a lot more control than you think you do. You just mm-hmm. have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone a little bit more.
0: Keep trying, man. Find out that little local newspaper that it sells for five cents in the grocery store and has a bunch of ads in it mm-hmm. those exist in every c- rural community it'll be called like thrifty nickel or you know something dollar or and it'll be like a little thrift paper with a bunch of ads in it find that find out who controls the ads in that and put one in there you know um talk to people is another big thing a lot of times if you just talk to like you find the people who are sort of involved in the community you know you go to the barber shop there or whatever and you tell the barber i've got five acres for sale down the road and you know he'll tell everybody and you know you leave a stack of cards there i mean there's all kind of things you can do there's there's never a time when you should just be you know complacent if you're really really trying to make this happen you know
1: as we've talked about a big part of what you do is subdividing land and this could almost warrant like a whole separate conversation because there's probably a lot to talk about here, but, um, just out of curiosity, there's sort of a lot that goes into this in terms of finding a property that's ideal for that and getting the approvals that are necessary. It's something I've never spent a ton of my time doing mainly mm-hmm. just cause I, oh, I guess a lot of reasons, but given that you're really sort of a specialist in this, what are you looking for when you're looking for a good piece of property to subdivide? Is it, I know you mentioned earlier, like road access, um, it, like, are you right. are you trying to figure out what rules are in place with the local municipality before mm-hmm. you even go down that road? You probably already know since you're in those three counties, but right. Um, what does that entail exactly? Sure, sure. So,
0: as far as I know, this works the same way across the United States. All subdivision regulations and the control of those regulations are county based. So the county is going to control that. It's never there's there. I I believe there are some federal rules about land use, but they have never affected my business in any way. And I never operate within the within the city limits because then you have a whole other set of rules. So if you're outside of the city limits and you're just in a a rural parish, the rules are going to be made by a county planning commission. Now, oftentimes you can find those rules on the internet. You just type in to Google um, Smith County Subdivision Regs, and you'll get a PDF. If you can't get it on the internet, you'll have to go down uh, to the county courthouse, and you'll just have to ask at the assessor's office or the clerk of court and uh, try to find that planning office and then just go in and talk to them. Don't be intimidated by that because, especially in a rural county, their job is to help you, uh, Mr. Capitalist, invest in their community and develop their community so they should be on your side now that doesn't mean they always are right Mm -hmm. Um, but they should be so don't be intimidated and you know shaking hands can make a big difference you go in you shake hands you show them that you're you're going to try to do right and oftentimes they'll explain to you in, in great detail exactly what the rules are now this is another thing that I believe works the same way in every county in the United States, um, but there are obviously going to be exceptions, especially in cities and stuff like that. But there are different levels of subdivisions. So where I live, there's a minor subdivision and a major subdivision. And what that means is there's different sets of rules for each one. So a minor subdivision is going to be something like, well, I have, 10, I have 20 acres. I want to make four five-acre lots right? The county's going to look at that. They're going to see, well, it's got roads already existing. It's got utilities already existing. This is a minor subdivision. Therefore, the process is very, very simple, right? You just, well, we'll we'll get into how you do it exactly in a minute, but the process is very simple. Now, if you want to do 21 acre lots on that 20 acre piece, now you're into like major subdivision territory and the Mm -hmm. The rules are totally different, and they're way scarier. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking wetlands studies and drainage delineations and, um, you know, they want to know what kind of animals live on it and how it's going to affect the traffic and, and that kind of thing. So I don't I don't mess around with major subdivisions. I know it sounds kind of unambitious, um, <laughs> yeah. but um, it's just you need to have a team of lawyers at your back yeah. to do that kind of thing.
1: hmm uh-huh. So, so basically, minor is when you're doing fewer splits and majors. fewer
0: larger splits I with gotcha. existing road frontage. And it'll be it'll be called different things in different places. Major, minor, subdivision is just what it's called where I am. But they have things like uh, mini partitions and family partitions, and um, you know the different qual- classifications for for subdivision. So you need to read those subdivision regs because it'll explain all that in your county Mm -hmm.
1: and i actually have come across some areas in my state where the township or the even like the tiny little town that it's in has some jurisdiction over the subdivision rules in that particular area Mm, even
0: outside of the city limits or the town limits
1: yeah and i I think what it comes down to is that you need to figure out like what is the, the smallest common denominator like i think the county is usually a pretty safe bet to start with but like if you need to drill down further to the municipality or the township like yeah and i know
0: there are zones in some places like i don't obviously live in california and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i mean in the great mass of america a lot of this stuff is relatively uncontrolled Mm -hmm. um there are some places where they're going to be like no this random piece of of land is is zoned for this or xyz but i've never come up against that and um I'd, I'd be very interested to hear from your listeners what kind of zoning regs there are in other places. But you're going to want to check all that before you buy. And what I would do is isolate a county and then figure everything out about that county and then start looking for land there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, you know similar to a lot of other issues like tax laws and foreclosure laws and things like that. Like It's a heck of a lot easier to focus on one state and figure out how things work in that state or even one yeah. county like you said. Sure. If you're trying to do this in like five states at the same time, you're going to go nuts. Just trying to yeah. figure out all the different rules and regulations. So, yeah. Um, so let's say we're going to call the county and try to start the conversation to potentially split up a larger parcel. Who do I want to talk to? What office is going to be able to either tell me yes or no, or what the process is, or or point me in the right direction?
0: You know, I can give you a really great pro tip here, and it's kind of what I tend to do which is to establish a relationship with a local surveyor. And when I say a local surveyor, I mean a surveyor who lives in the same county as you're working in. Mm-hmm. I actually generally start the conversation with that person okay. because this is what they do for a living. Ah, right. They interface between landowners and the county planning commission. Mm-hmm. So they're they know all the players. They are knowledgeable about how the rules work. And if you hire them again and again and are, you know, sort of get to develop a brand loyalty with them, they'll actually fight for you mm-hmm. to get your stuff passed through. Hmm. So often I'll read the subdivision regulations, but I won't necessarily interface directly with the planning commission. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, especially if I have a surveyor who's in my sort of network of contractors who I trust, I'll pretty much have him lead the the process every step of the way. And that's that's a that's huge. You want to do that if you can. Now if you can't do that, if you can't find a surveyor for whatever reason, then you got to go to the county planning commission and go in there and just say, "Hey, I, you know, I'd like to talk to somebody. Here's my plan and have it drawn up on a, you know, iPad or whatever." And have your have your boundary survey with you because the boundary survey is going to be different, right? The boundary survey just shows, okay, here's this box, and it's 20 acres, and this is what I own. Now I'm going to get my surveyor to break this up into four different five-acre pieces. It's going to look something like this. Would you have any problem with that? What do I need to do to make this happen? And they'll generally say, well, they need to be at least 125 feet wide. Okay, that's not a problem. Well, you know, you need to make sure that there's no mobile homes in the area because blah 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 blah. Well, they won't usually do that, but depending on how close to civilization you are, then the more rules there are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What what we tend to do is once it starts getting to too many rules and and too hot, we just sort of move one county over mm-hmm. to where it's still rural, and they're just thanking God that you're there to bring <laughs> some some money and some people into this, you know. <laughs> empty, empty piece of, uh, piece of America. So sure, <laughs> yeah,
1: no, that's uh, that's super, super helpful. That whole point about, you know, finding a surveyor to act as your, uh, ambassador or whatever you want to call it. That's a great, great idea. Cause I, I mean, if anybody would know what needs to be done, it's them. Yeah. I, yep. I'm curious, like what, how much do you typically have to pay? Like how much are we talking? Like what kind of survey do you need to get? And is this like several thousand dollars to get all this work done?
0: Sure, it, it can be. It can be, um, you know. But you you but you you plug that into the calculation. So you know, if I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollars on a project, well, I need to plan five thousand for, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, generally, um, a survey. It depends on how big it is, but the land I deal with, twenty acres. A boundary survey might be fifteen hundred bucks. And then once they have the boundary survey and you've shown them how you want it subdivided, they'll come back and set the corners on your lots for another $750 to $1,500. So you're talking two to $3,000 for all the surveying. Then you're going to have to pay um, a kind of bureaucratic – some bureaucratic fees. Uh, it could be like $200 a lot or something like that. So when you're looking at a big project of 20 acres, you're cutting it up into pieces, getting it approved – All that kind of stuff. You're looking at about five thousand dollars. So you need to budget all that into the into the equation. Mm -hmm. And you know, if it costs a little more, it's not very difficult to pass that
1: cost on to your buyers. It's really not. So, um, does it ever happen where like you? pay a couple thousand dollars for some survey work and then you some you hit like a brick wall. It's like, oh sorry, you can't actually do this, sorry. And then you're out the money. Has that ever happened? Or do you does the surveyor kinda educate you beforehand before you even get that far?
0: Yeah, that that has never happened. Okay. Um but the process can get political. You sort of have to walk lightly but just be prepared to fight for you're, you fight for your rights, I guess. I mm-hmm. don't know if it's a right or not. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of a right when you think about it. Hey, I own this 20 acres. Who are you to tell me I can't mm-hmm. sell five of it, you know? Yeah. that's And so they know that. They know that you're not going to put up with it and it can get political and there are cases where you could conceivably have to hire a lawyer. But again, this is why we focus on the small minor subdivisions in rural areas. Mm-hmm. If you focus on that, It's very unlikely that you're going to have any problem. Mm -hmm. If you go into some suburb, some NIMBY filled suburb, and say, Hey, I'm going to make a 40 unit subdivision right here in in the middle of the town, yeah, you're going to have, you could be fighting for five years to get that done. Mm -hmm. You know, you can still get it done. You're just going to have to hire lawyers and charge a bunch for your lots to recoup the costs and stuff like that, but it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, Flying under the radar, you know, um, I mean, you're not doing anything nefarious at all. You're just, you're just trying to avoid the red tape that comes from high-density places um, with a lot of people in it. And so, yeah, we've never, had, we've never been stopped. And, and, and it's, there's, always, it, there's always wiggle room in negotiation. Oh, you can't make four lots. Okay, well, I'll make three lots, and I'll make $10,000 less or, or whatever. you know. Mm-hmm. And on top of all that, what I'll just say to you is that you should buy in such a way that you can just flip the whole property if you need to right? Subdivision's great. Subdivision gives you a huge return. And it, it always ha- has been something that I've been able to do without problems. But in the case that you couldn't, and you owned this tent, this 20 acres that cost you 75000 well, be prepared to mow the grass and sell it for 85000 You know, you're not mm-hmm. going to lose money. You might not make enough to support yourself on that deal, but you know, you won't lose money. And that's never happened either. So, but we always buy that way. We yeah. buy so that if we need to, we can just sell the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, if you were to, hypothetically, let's say you bought 20 acres in some random county in California, and you said, hey, I want to subdivide this thing, but you've never been there, you can't really get there, you can't really shake anybody's hand, best you can do is basically find a local surveyor and hope they can help you through it. What are the chances of you succeeding with that? Like do you really need to be on site to make this work or is it even possible to do it from afar?
0: Man, I've I've heard, you know, I'm you're going to catch me sounding a little ignorant here, but I've heard so many horror stories about California. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fill in the blank with any other state out
0: there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I don't know how true the stories I've heard are, but I've heard California like they pretty much just control everything that you can do with, with your land in some places. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know how that would work in California. But I can tell you that I would research it before I decided to buy property there. Mm-hmm. So I'd go to a county in California that was an hour away from, let's say it was an hour away from Sacramento on the interstate. I don't even know what interstate's there. But let's say it's an hour away from Sacramento and there's this county there that's not very developed. Okay, first first thing I would do is try to get the subdivision regs and try to find a local surveyor. And I'd ask them you know, 120 questions before I ever decided I'm going to invest in this area of the country. Mm-hmm. Only after all that checked out would I do it. And then if I started to have problems, I'd, I'd have to have the, um, the lawyer fees b- baked into the profit. I'd say, well, if the worst case happens, I'm going to need to pay this lawyer $10,000 to sort this out for me. And I'd sort of have that baked into the profit. Um, but in reality, what I would do is just go a little further away probably and do it there. If I found anything that, that seemed,
1: uh, unsur- insurmountable, you know, uh-huh. so yeah, I'm curious what the, the mechanics of how you subdivide something is it essentially just like, like say if you get the deed for 20 acres transferred to you what is getting recorded so that it's officially broken up and you can now, is it like you're basically just signing a bunch of new deeds for the individual lots with different legal descriptions now, or do they have to like record a new master deed or a master survey or like yeah, what it's, documentation it's the, is coming out of this that allows you to do it?
0: You hit it there. It's the, it's the survey. We call it a plat in this part of the country. And what that is is the master drawing of everything. Okay, And so instead of owning a 20 acre piece, uh, as is recorded in the assessor's office, you now own five two-acre lots. And I want to say that you might need to be a little careful about this if you live somewhere where tax property taxes are really, really high, because the county will come in and reassess. They'll say, well, this 2 acres lot is now worth twice as much as it was worth before, so you have to pay double taxes on it. Where I live, and I'm so far out in the country that this doesn't really affect me cuz taxes are like $50, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge deal, but if you live somewhere like California where taxes are crazy, you know, be prepared to to figure that into your um into your line items so, because you do now own five tracts of land that are more valuable than the the whole. Mm-hmm. So you need to be prepared for that. But yeah, you get the surveyor to break it up and to make a master plat. He's going to submit that plat to the planning commission. They're gonna say, "Oh, can you do this and change that and sign that?" And he'll do it, and then pay the fee, and then they're gonna take that plat and they're gonna record it in the in the um, assessor's office. They also have like maps now, the GIS maps that show mm-hmm. everything. They used to be handwritten, so it'll be drawn on the map, the official the official map. And uh, yeah, then you then you own your uh, your five acres, and the legal description becomes instead of being like you know, the northwest corner of the northwest corner of this township section range, Mm. it will instead become Lot 1, Seth Williams subdivision. Lot 2, Seth Williams subdivision. Lot 3, Seth Williams subdivision. Mm -hmm. So it changes the the nature of what you own but you well,
1: know that, uh, that makes perfect sense i mean i yeah i've seen tons of plat maps doing various title searches and stuff and mm-hmm. i mean these things mm-hmm. are from like the 20s and stuff going way back so it's <laughs> basically that same thing is happening right when
0: you right. establish. A new i'm sure location. it was much easier in the 20s stuff <laughs>
1: <laughs> probably <laughs>
0: But cool, yeah, man. it's still pretty easy. It's still possible. Mm-hmm. You have to prepare, and, and like anything else, you have to you have to fight for your pennies. You know, it's it's never nobody ever
1: gives you anything, mm-hmm. as you know, Seth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, if somebody is listening to all this and they're like, "Hey, I want to try to buy a property with the intent of subdividing it, or I just want to get into land in general and do these things that uh, that you're talking about," do you have any? I don't know, big words of advice for somebody who is wanting to get into this business?
0: I mean, my advice would be to to start in your backyard. Start where you know um, what's going on, right? I think uh, my dad bought his first house was in the neighborhood that he lived in, you know, and he flipped it because he knew what houses were going for there. And that's been our philosophy ever since is we know what land goes for in this area. We're established. And even if you're not established, even if you're just some guy who lives um, in a small town, you know, just start in your own backyard, start small, read the subdivision regs and go for the most minor type of subdivision that you can because you're going to get the least resistance that way, right? And just as you're always saying, pick up the phone, call realtors, call surveyors, call dirt men and be persistent, you know, ask everyone about land. Ask everyone you talk to if they know of land for sale. And just, in general, know your area as best you can.
1: Cool. Seth, I appreciate so much you taking your time to chat with me. If people want to get a hold of you or find out more about what you got going on, what's the best way to do that?
0: Yeah, uh, so I have a f- active Facebook group, uh, the Land Flipper Facebook group. So you can find there. Uh, I have an email address, which is thelandflipper at com. I know it sounds terribly unprofessional to have a Gmail address, but uh, <laughs> there it is. I have another one, but I like no one ever messages me there, so i will just say uh, the at gmail dot com. I also sell a course on this stuff, which is at which is at landflippers dot com, and you can get uh, half price on the lifetime membership by using re tipster fifty. Awesome.
1: Sweet deal yep. yeah and I've, I've been through not the entire course but a good chunk of it and from what i've seen it's it's very good you do a really good job of explaining things and very down-to-earth relatable way of conveying all the information so it's pretty good stuff
0: thanks uh, man i've taken your course too and i like it just as much so sweet
1: <laughs> and hopefully you know if the listeners out there got something out of this i'm gonna have uh, a lot more of this information all the stuff that you mentioned i'll link to it on the blog and uh yeah Anything else you want to share before we wrap it up
0: or is that? uh... I just, it was a real pleasure talking to you, Seth. I appreciate everything you do. I really like your content and the podcast is awesome, man. It's a, it's a great
1: honor for me to to be on here. So keep doing what you're doing, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. There we go, folks. That's the interview. Pretty cool, huh? I thought Seth was a pretty cool guy. Had a lot of good insights to share. Honestly, like I don't think this is necessarily going to like change a lot of how I run my business. However, I'll tell you, I really appreciate knowing more about this stuff. I think some of this stuff was news to me, some of it was not, and some of it kind of varies depending on what part of the country you're working in. As we talked about, I mean, there are some states and some part of the country that are like super bureaucratic and like really, really hard to do things like subdividing land and other parts of the country where it's like, one of the easiest things in the world. You just have to know who to talk to and how to go through those motions, but it's really not all that difficult to subdivide property. So if you wanna go down this road, by all means, do plenty of research on how the process works in the market of your choice before you start jumping into this. And the other comment that I really liked was just the whole idea of buy a property so that if you need to, you can just resell the thing as it is and still make money. Like don't get into a deal with the absolute dependence on your ability to subdivide it because if the unexpected happens and you just can't do it, you don't want to make a bet on something that can't ultimately pan out. Always make sure you're leaving yourself a back door like that. Again, if you want to learn more about this particular approach to the land business that we've been talking about, be sure to check out retipster.com forward slash 14, retipster.com forward slash 14. And you'll see all the show notes for this episode with links to everything that we talked about. The websites run by E.B. Farmer and the books that he's written and all that stuff. It's all there. Definitely go check that out. And uh, something I thought would be kind of fun is if I read a couple of the reviews that I've seen come through on iTunes. It's actually like super, super fun for me to read what people say. Whether they do or even like don't like aspects of the show. I always get a kick out of hearing what people have to say. So this first one is from Jim R. Jim says, Seth, it took me listening to several podcasts to stop and take a moment to thank you for doing this. You're welcome, Jim. I find them a great source of content and inspiration. A great example being the recent episode with Tamar Mar. Wow. Again, thank you for taking the time to put these podcasts together. I know it's not a trivial task and do hope you'll continue to invest the time it takes to do these. Great stuff. Thank you. No, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. And I'm really glad you've been liking it. Another one here. I think this one actually might be from Greg from the previous episode. I could be wrong, but the username is GWS1977. He says, I've been following the RE Tipster blog since June of 2016. I have flipped 27 properties, paid off $49,000 in debt, and my wife was able to quit her job and stay home with our newborn daughter. Thanks, Seth. Well, that's amazing. Whether that was Greg or not, I appreciate that uh, review and that comment, and that's super inspirational, and I'm really, really glad to hear that uh, both of those people have been liking the podcast so far. If you like the podcast, and even if you don't, I encourage you at some point to swing over to iTunes. Leave me a review. Let me know what you're thinking about this. If there are things you're liking or not liking, I'm all ears and I want to hear about it. I'll also mention, since this episode was pretty much entirely about uh, the land investing business, chances are you probably already know this, but in case you don't, I'll mention it here. If you have any interest in learning the ins and outs of the land investing business in the way that I run it, First of all, there's a ton of free stuff you can find over at retipster.com. But if you're looking for more of a premium, you know, one, two, three step approach that really just focuses on the essentials that you're gonna need to know in order to get started and grow your business and get a supportive forum that comes along with it, along with monthly coaching webinars with myself, that sounds like anything you might be interested in, by all means, go check out the membership site that I run over at retipster.club. That's where you can learn about all that stuff. And if you want to learn more about the specific ways that E.B. Farmer runs his business, which is really a completely different business, honestly, it just happens to be land as well. <laughs> and by all means, go check out his site, which I believe is landflippers.com. And there is a discount code you can use if you want to get a discount on that. I think there's actually two different discount codes and they both work to the best of my knowledge. One of them is R.E. Tipster. The other one is R.E. Tipster 50. So you can play around with either or both of those and use whichever one gives you the best discount, whatever that ends up being. So, <laughs> But regardless, I'd encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode. I'll have all these details, links to all the specifics, and uh, you can totally check it out that way. So to wrap this up, I wanna share with you A really interesting saying that I saw on a magnet in a gift shop not long ago. I took a picture of it because I just had to remember it. I thought it was so simple and yet so brilliant. It said, The richest person is not who has the most, but who needs the least. Think about that and let it sink in. I wish you all happiness, all the success, and all the freedom that you deserve, dear listener. And I cannot wait until we talk again.
0: Thanks for listening to the RE Tipster Podcast. For a full summary of this episode, stocked with links, show notes, and a lot more, check out the podcast archive page at retipster.com forward slash podcast.